For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, spend time with a local student who is balancing education, family, and a limited income. Meet Tucsonan Philip Gabriel, the English translator for the works of best-selling writer Haruki Murakami. Learn about a simple technique that some say can reduce stress, insomnia, and grief. And go inside the rodeo ring with a professional bull rider. Those stories are coming up on Arizona Spotlight. Proposed state funding cuts to higher education have students worried about tuition and fees that could go up again. Sandra Westall met a 21-year-old student who's going to school and working and just getting by. Mercedes Galarza spends a lot of time in front of the computers at the University of Arizona's main library. School is basically like my second home. After graduating from Sunnyside High School, she continued her education at the U of A. Today she's a junior and the first in her family to go to college. Most of my family members live in Mexico, so I didn't have cousins to play with when I was little or aunts and uncle houses to go to. All I had was school and school was a lot of fun for me. I loved learning, so I think that's just transcended over the years. Mercedes says her dream of a college degree is getting more difficult to hold on to as the cost of higher education increases. So I pay for college through the use of um, the Pell Grant. Less than half is paid for by university grant. I was trying my best to not take out loans, but I ended up having to do it. So it's kind of like a situation where either I stay in school and take out that loan or drop out. Just two years ago, her grants covered her tuition and more. I would always have like maybe $400 left over or $500 to like use on books, but Apparently it was different this year. I had even less money to cover for tuition. That's because the costs have gone up substantially, and she fears they will worsen if more money is being cut from the U of A's state funding. Any increase on tuition, it would be hard to, to, stay, to stay in school. That has made college life difficult, she says. So far, my experience here at the U of A has been awesome, just because I, I love school, but it's, it's not anything near what it's like in the movies for me. Oh, but that's right, we don't have any Parmesan. We don't. In a small brick house on Tucson's south side, Mercedes and her 12-year-old sister are making dinner. Angel hair pasta with tomato sauce. Right now, I am, you know, the caretaker of my family. Her mom can't work for health reasons. So it's up to Mercedes to pay the family's bills while earning minimum wage and being a full-time student. I don't have a cell phone right now. Um, kind of came down to priorities. Like either I keep my phone and not have enough money to pay the water bill or the electricity bill. Usually after every paycheck I have, if I'm lucky, over $30. Half of that goes to gas and then whatever's left over is kind of carried on for another two weeks until I get paid again. Her tight budget means long hours away from home. Most of my free time I tend to spend here at the library studying just because at home I don't have, you know, I don't have internet at home. 
there's been times where um, I don't even see my mom or my sister because I'm always here. This has led Mercedes to consider dropping out of school. Many times I've, I've felt like it would be just easier if I drop out and find a full-time job that you know pays better than minimum wage to help support my family but and then I, I think like I, I want to be that person that my sister looks up to and my nephews and my nieces look up to. I kind of just came here and figured things out on my own so I kind of want to be that person for them, help guide them. I'm also a mentor for um, middle school kids at Challenger so I can't, how can I stand to them and, and say, yeah, go to college, you know, continue your education if I don't do that myself. Her goal is to go to graduate school, but she knows that the road will not be easy. Depending on if I am able to find a way that pays for it fully, then gladly I'll do it. But if not, then that's not a huge option for me right now. And that depends on future budget cuts. If it's really that important for students to go to college, then why is it so unobtainable for some students? I think at one point it might start becoming a dream something that I won't be able to do, like a really fancy sports car, something you look at and admire from far away, but you know you're never going to be able to get that. Mercedes is determined to keep striving for a higher education so that she can be the role model that she would like to be. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Sandra Westall. To an author, words are everything. The acclaimed novelist and short story writer Haruki Murakami is known for choosing his words with care and precision. Murakami is a best-selling author who's become a cultural phenomenon in his native country. He knows that not everyone can read his fiction in the original Japanese. So Murakami has taken an active interest in how his books are translated around the world. Which brings us to a man who lives in Tucson. And this story, produced by Vanessa Barchfield. I got a call out of the blue from the New Yorker and they said, well, we have a couple of your short stories that you did and uh, we'd like to publish one of them. And so, of course, I was really happy and, and it kind of started from there. My name is Philip Gabriel. Um, in Japanese pronunciation, that'd be Philippe Gabrielu or Gaburielu, kind of hard to say and I'm a professor of Japanese literature in the Department of East Asian Studies at the University of Arizona. And among other things, I translate uh, the novels and short stories of the Japanese novelist, Haruki Murakami. I first discovered him in 1986, and I was living in Nagasaki, and I was set to go back to a PhD program in the U.S. And at that time, it was hard to get books from Japan. So before I left, I wanted to buy some and take them. So a friend of mine who was a professor of Japanese literature, we went to an, a bookstore, and he recommended like four or five authors. And I'd never heard of Murakami. 
uh, but he said, well, this is what the young people really like to read, this, this guy. And so I bought two of his uh, collections of short stories. And then when I got into grad school, I started reading them. And I just fell in love with them. My first reaction was that they reminded me a lot of Kurt Vonnegut's writing. And they were kind of quirky and funny and had a kind of whimsical view of, of life and easier than swallowing down a slick, raw egg. Uh, I was born in California, but mainly grew up at West Point in the military academy. My father taught there. He taught Russian, German, and Chinese. And so from a pretty early age, I was exposed to those kind of languages. Um, I was interested in Russian. And then when he started teaching Chinese, I got really into the writing system. It was very appealing to me, you know, the pictorial aspect of it. Then I majored in Chinese as an undergrad and got interested in Japanese literature. In my senior year, I just read some books in translation and I said, I want to study and read these in the original. I always tell people the story about how when I was studying Chinese, I had to know about 5,000 characters to read like a newspaper. And then when I switched to Japanese, people who didn't know my background said, Oh, you know, you're going to have to learn two or three thousand characters. And I said, is that all? Far and away, Murakami is the most popular and best-selling writer in Japan. Um, the one thing they always mention is the lines outside the bookstores. They, they're doing midnight openings in Japan now for his books specifically. I don't know if they do it for other authors. I watch Japanese TV here and when this new book came out, that was on the uh, morning news programs, is like, you know, along with international news about wars and various things. One of their top, like, five stories was the release of this book. This isn't specifically in any way about the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that killed 20,000 people in Japan. Huge disaster. But there is something about it in the personal story of this character about recovering from sudden catastrophe and disaster and trauma and how do you get back on your feet after that. And there is uh, one line in the book that Someone makes mention of earthquakes and tsunami. A news report of a huge earthquake or terrible flood. One of the great challenges of, of uh, translating Japanese literature is there is still a lot that's very different about Japanese culture, and food is one of the things. And um, I, how to translate those is, you know, what do you do with those? In the old days, even the word sushi was not a word that people know. Now if it comes up, we just say sushi. Translate is sushi. You know, it's easy, but in the, you know, like 40, 50 years ago, that was a that was a challenge. And some translators just throw them out and put them in italics, like you're listing Italian foods and you don't really know, as an American, what exactly they are. Um, sometimes they add, we add a little bit of explanation uh, just to, to give some sense of what, of what it is. Because I think people are reading it too for enjoyment, but also a little, for a little bit of information too, you know, reading foreign literature as to learn more about a foreign culture. Like a lot of people, I probably went through a phase where I thought maybe I could write, and I realized I 
was not a creative writer, really. Uh, the idea of staring at a blank page, I mean, I've done it in my own academic writing. It's kind of scary. And with a translation, you have a, a product there, and the idea is, I don't know what it is, like a, make a, maybe a musical arrangement or something. There's, you know, you're, you're taking something that's already there and reworking it, reinterpreting You do almost feel like you're viewing the world through those characters' eyes. It's, even though you finish, you know, maybe two or three hours doing your day's worth of translation, something lingers with you and affects you. And uh, it, it's like maybe an actor not being able to get out of character easily. I think that's part of the appeal of his, of his literature, is things linger in your mind. Why don't I just read the first page from this, from his latest novel, Colorless Tsukuru Tazaki. From July of his sophomore year in college until the following January, all Tsukuru Tazaki could think about was dying. He turned 20 during this time, but this special watershed, becoming an adult, meant nothing. Taking his own life seemed the most natural solution, and even now he couldn't say why he hadn't taken this final step. Crossing that threshold between life and death would have been easier than swallowing down a slick, raw egg. Perhaps he didn't commit suicide then because he couldn't conceive of a method that fit the pure and intense feelings he had toward death. But method was beside the point. If there had been a door within reach that led straight to death, he wouldn't have hesitated to push it open without a second thought, as if it were just a part of ordinary life. For better or for worse, though, there was no such door nearby. That story was produced by Vanessa Barchfield. Just lie back and relax. It's something we've all heard said, but it's less often done. Now, two Tucson residents with backgrounds in healing and holistic medicine are promoting a simple routine that they say has many physical and psychological benefits. Next, Tony Paniagua speaks with Victor Shamas, Ph.D., a health psychologist at the University of Arizona, and Jan Cold, a rehabilitation specialist, about a book they co-authored called Repose, The Potent Pause. Repose is a relaxation technique that involves lying on the floor, flat on your back with your arms out, perpendicular to your torso, palms up, and your legs are spread as wide as comfortably possible. You don't need to think of anything special. You're just relaxing and being receptive. And what are some of the benefits, Victor? Well, we see three primary benefits. The first thing is stress relief, and that's very, very important in our society right now. The second thing is that uh, repose creates a shift in mindset, and that's also very important because we need that pause to get a new perspective, to rest our minds. Uh, it opens up our creativity. It is the reason why people feel more optimistic and more resilient when they do it. And then the, th the third element is it just feels good. That's what we really love about repose, is that when you come out of it, people report that they feel both energized and relaxed. That's a tough combination to come by. <laughs> One of the things we've spoke about before this interview is that in some ways people feel vulnerable or they don't feel comfortable getting into this position, especially out in public. What would you like to say about that? 
most of the people we found have have overcome that, uh, but we have some thoughts about uh, how to deal with vulnerability. For example, you could cover yourself with a blanket. You can do it in the privacy of your own room and behind locked doors. Most people that we've met who started out feeling vulnerable eventually turned it into something that felt open and receptive. Those are similar ideas, but they're very different. And what are some of the benefits, Jan? Well, we've seen one individual, well, numerous individuals make progress with insomnia. One woman was taking Valium for sleep for six years and was able to discontinue her use by practicing repose three times a day. And we've seen other folks give up bad habits, like coming home from school at three o'clock and wanting to eat chocolate or drink caffeine, and they instead lay down and restore themselves in a different way. Uh, Folks with anxiety are benefited. Those with depression, and Victor has his own story of... Well, we basically uh, approached this from three different angles. First is the research findings that we did a two-month study, and what we found is people who did repose for 30 days, three times a day, that those people had better mental and physical health outcomes, including improvements in things like optimism, resilience, life satisfaction, uh, fewer days lost of physical activity or any kind of activity, work-related activity because of physical health. So we've seen some research findings that are very strong, suggesting that it's, it's potent. But then what Jan's talking about is some of the anecdotal evidence that still remains to be fleshed out. And uh, and then we also have, from our own direct experience, it's been transformative for both of us. Since I've been doing repose, I've lost 25 pounds, and I do attribute that to repose because uh, stress is inflammatory and inflammation causes weight gain. And as soon as we took stress out of our lives through repose, the weight came off. Similarly, I've had chronic knee pain that went away after doing repose, and we're probably as happy uh, as we've ever been. I feel giddy every morning like it's Christmas morning, and I really attribute that to repose. And what about the skeptics? Because this is free, and it's simple. I was reading a little bit about your information here, and they might say, wow, this is just another gimmick. Uh, What would you like to say, Jan? That it seems too easy. That's the beauty of repose, is that it doesn't cost a thing, that it's available to everyone. It makes that relaxation accessible, and people can adapt it to what they like best. Many people like to do it outdoors. or um, So I think the best recommendation is that people give it a try, and they will feel for themselves the benefits. So, Jan, you would just recommend lie on your back for three times a day, a, a few minutes each time? and It's seven minutes that's recommended. And I wanted to say one thing about downloading the book, that you don't need to have a, a Kindle to do that. It's available on various platforms. You can download a free app to access the book through Amazon. And we suggested doing it in our book at 9 a.m., 3 p.m., and 9 p.m. We realize some people don't have that luxury. Uh, So we say morning, afternoon, evening, and 3 p.m. is a really great time because 3 p.m. is a time of day where our circadian rhythms really slow down. We have a lull. That's that 2.30 feeling that people talk about. So this is a great way to deal with that. 
Okay, so next time you go to work and some, somebody is lying on their back, don't uh, look at them strange, right? <laughs> we actually expect that that's the future of uh, the workplace. We think uh, we have evidence from student studies that there's increases in productivity, including attention, memory, problem solving. So let me ask you this. If you get all these benefits from doing seven minutes of repose every day, wouldn't your employer want to know that? Okay, excellent. Well, Victor Shamus and Jan Cole, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for having us. The Tucson Rodeo, La Fiesta de los Vaqueros, is celebrating its 90th anniversary this year. It's a traditional event that draws a lot of interest and excitement from spectators and competitors. In this story, Mitchell Riley meets bull rider Steve Woolsey, who's considered a rodeo veteran after 10 years on the circuit. Woolsey grew up on a farm in Benjamin, Utah, and he says he's grateful for his family's Western way of life and the path it has led him to follow. It keeps us busy. I'll probably go from anywhere to 100 to 120 rodeos this year. My name's Steve Woolsey. I'm uh, 28 years old and I'm from Payson, Utah. I've been riding bulls professionally for 10 years. That's how I make my money. Life on the road is awesome. You're traveling around from rodeo to rodeo, uh, town to town with uh, some of your best buddies and uh, Every time you show up to a rodeo, uh, you get to see everybody that you've become friends with and everybody that you know throughout the years. And if you've never been on a bull, it's, it's hard to explain. It's like nothing that you've ever done. Mentally, you uh, know that your uh, body is prepared and, and ready for whatever that bull does. So you just basically try to shut your mind off and uh, just let it react. The bull I'm getting on is 928 uh, Monkey Soup. I'm, I'm going to try to ride him jump for jump. After you nod your head, you're really not thinking. It's it's a reaction. The bull called Monkey Soup. jumped out there the first one and then really blew up the second one and kicked and uh, I think he realized that I was still on him and he didn't like it and he just went to kind of throw in his head and then I think he was trying to hook me more than buck but I made the whistle and got a score I don't even know what they scored me uh, see if it's good enough to come back to the short round I've been awfully lucky in the sport the first year as a professional, I ended up second in the world behind Matt Austin. So I just kind of raised into it. My dad rode bulls in high school when he was younger, and my older brother rode bulls professionally, and I just kind of took up the reins after him. When we were younger, my dad had about 20 to 30 head of brood mares and raised mule colts and uh, horse colts. My mom, Dana, 
she, uh, she passed away a little over a year ago. She knew what uh, we were getting into. When she was younger, she was a racehorse jockey and ran barrels, so uh, she was around. It probably wasn't what she wanted us to do, but once we started going towards that, and uh, I think she could see how much we loved it, she just told us uh, to, to go get the money. I know she's still with me. Uh, that helps me quite a bit. It's never easy when you lose somebody but uh, she was an awfully good mom. Two and a half years ago, I had a bull uh, step on my hips and tear my growing completely off of my pelvis, and I had, to, I had to have it reattached. That's kind of been my last battle that I've been trying to overcome. This is a sports medicine trailer. <laughs> The sports medicine uh, trainers are awesome. They travel from rodeo to rodeo and take their trailers. Basically, when we get hurt, they uh, keep us together and uh, keep us going down the road. You have to compete when you are injured because if we don't win, we're not making any money. If you have to get on when you're sore or injured, you uh, just try to put it in the back of your mind and try not to think about it. Help him, help him. The bulls are uh, trying to beat you. That's the biggest battle is, is trying to beat that bull and match him jump for jump, basically, and beat him through the eight seconds. Hey, they're gonna pay him for it too. It's an 81 point ride, 81. We're in the innings again. Eight seconds, I mean, you could walk from here to the end of the trailer in eight seconds and uh, be no big deal, but when you're on the back of something that's trying to throw you off, it's a little different story. 777 is it? If I had any advice for a young bull rider, it would be to keep your head down and uh, know where you're wanting to get and, and make goals towards that and stay focused. And don't get caught up in, in all the other mumbo jumbo, I guess. Everybody's different and uh, the reason why I keep doing it. It's, uh, it's what I love to do and uh, it gives me a lot of freedom in life. Almost be like I was quitting myself if I, uh, if I didn't keep riding. Today was the short round of the rodeo, uh, which the top 12 come back to the short round. Um, and they bucked me off today and uh, didn't end up getting any money. But I would have liked to have done better. Uh, gather my stuff up and go to the next one. Try to get in there. The only thing uh, that I haven't accomplished that I really want to do in my career is uh, win the world championship and uh, get the gold buckle. Mitchell Riley produced that story. Steve Woolsey is still chasing the gold buckle. He'll be competing in the bull riding championships at next week's Tucson Rodeo. The finals are scheduled for March 1st. You can also see Woolsey's story as it appeared on Arizona Illustrated at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. 
Production assistance by Caitlin Dean. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.